Hi, I'm Mark from Annandale, New Jersey. I'm Chris Nelson from South Dakota. I'm Jen from Oakland. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Nick Hornby, is an acclaimed novelist whose uh, many books include. Uh, we're talking about high fidelity. We're looking at about a boy. We're talking about a slam, about a skateboarding teen. We're talking about a long way down, about a group of people who are committing suicide. We're talking about most recently the book Juliet Naked, uh, which follows three characters, an aging singer-songwriter who's uh, willf- willfully excluded himself from the music business for 20 years or so, his biggest fan and the leader of his internet fan community, and his biggest fan's wife, who's a little bit perplexed by the whole thing. He's also the screenwriter behind uh, the just-released film An Education, which follows a teenage girl uh, in the early 1960s in England as she dates a much older and apparently much more sophisticated gentleman. Um, Nick Hornby, it's great to have you back on The Sound of Young America. It's lovely to be here. You've been reading up on me. I, You know what? Here's what I do, Nick. Every time a guest is coming on the program, I try and learn a little bit about them so that the interview will be better. But this doesn't happen in the rest of America. <laughs> have you had bad experiences <laughs> thus far? People know who you are. They remember Jack Black's star-making turn in the film High Fidelity. Sometimes they don't connect it with me. You are Jack Black, I right? I am Jack Black. That's a twofer, because you wrote those great books, and you do all those funny, like, uh, turns and dances. Exactly. Um, it is great to have you back here on the show, and I, I really enjoyed this new book. You know, it, it features things that uh, we've come to expect from your oeuvre, uh, such as, um, you know, record nerds and, and music and uh, stuff like that. But it also featured, features other things that, that we've less come to expect, like uh, getting old. Yes, um, that seems to be happening. Uh, your protagonist, Tucker Crow, or one of your triumvirate of protagonists, Tucker Crow, is this uh, singer-songwriter who is kind of looking at the towards the end of his life um, I mean, not, you know, the death years, but <laughs> he's he's looking at himself in his slow decline and, and coming to terms with the fact that he's sort of an old dude. What moved you to write about that part of life? Well, uh, I think because I'm an old dude. Um, not quite. Yeah, well, I turned 50. I think when you turn 50, you stop making the joke that you're getting old. Um, you know, when you do it when you're 20 and 30 and 40, and you say, oh, I'm getting old. And then 50 you don't make that joke anymore because it's actually just true. And um, <laughs> I, I would say that 50 is the first birthday I've had where I realized that I am actually going to get old and die. Where, really? Where I felt it in my bones. What know. did you feel? I, I thought, oh, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so you know, some of that was in there. There is a kind of melancholy. It, it's a book about the past in in lots of ways that... Um, these characters, Annie and Duncan, Duncan's the, ne- the nerdy one. They live in this seaside town that's kind of the past because nobody goes to English seaside towns anymore, especially in the northern half of the country. Everyone goes to Spain for 
£30 instead. Um, and Annie works in a museum and uh, Tucker doesn't have a career anymore. Or his career is in the past and Duncan's focusing on what happened to Tucker 20 years ago. So um, that's partly what the book's about, I think, the past and regret. Well, my wife and I watched an education earlier today and she had just uh, she read uh, the book as well. And uh, she said to me, well, you could tell you could tell Nick Hornby was involved. And I was like, why is that? And she said, oh, you know, like uh, some people are in it and um, uh, they're sort of dissatisfied with what's going on. And they go through a big, long thing. She did not mean any of this pejoratively. And I want to make that clear. That's fine. They go through a big, long, long thing, have a lot of adventures. And uh, the biggest thing that they learn is how to be comfortable with what they were. Um, rather than how to be a new thing? <laughs> yes. Um, well, I would say that's kind of my subject, and it's quite a good subject, I think, because uh, it seems to me there's too much in the culture that teaches us how to be a new thing, and that's what most books are about, and they have messages, and the message is that you can be a whole brand new you, and uh, I think that's probably particularly true of America, um, and I don't really believe that and uh, i think that the best we can do is make peace with ourselves and who we are and what we've got was that was that ever hard for you to do to make peace with myself and yeah. what i was um uh it's difficult to answer because i wouldn't have been able to make peace with myself if i, I hadn't been able to write um, or if i hadn't been able to make a living as a writer i, I think uh, i would have been pretty dissatisfied and uh, so once I got published, it was pretty easy to make peace with myself because that was really the ambition, I think, was, was to be able to support myself through writing. Sometimes I have like nightmares about the protagonist of High Fidelity who's struggling with this conflict within himself, which is essentially, is, is he going to be a guy who makes things or a guy who like listens to things that other people <laughs> made and, and categorizes them? And um, I, I wonder if you if you ever had to deal with that in your life, if you if you ever imagined your, yourself as a, a more successful appreciator than creator. Um, I, well, I never really settled for that. Um, there was a time when I was doing a lot of criticism and, um, you know, of books and, and music and things like that. And um, I wasn't quite satisfied with that i wanted to do something uh, that, that was more creative but i think it's a pretty good life being an appreciator and i i wouldn't ever give it up because that's a part of my work still um you know writing about books and be, writing about being a fan of stuff you know, what's the what's the relationship between those two between creating something out of whole cloth and also having so much of yourself dedicated to like you know, the first time you came over, you were so excited to see Swamp Dog. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Which is, you know, Swamp's a super cool guy and everything, but, like, it's like something you have to be an appreciator to get into. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. You're saying not everyone's coming no, it, here as and it got turns excited. Out, as it turns out, yeah. I mean, granted, like, you'll hear, sure, on the local Top 40 station here in Los Angeles, Swamp is getting 15, 20, 25 spins a week. But he's, no, I've got a feeling by the Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> yeah, well, 
I think the relationship between the one and the other is that I can't do one without the other. A lot of stuff's got to go in before it comes out. And um, certainly, you know, music gets converted into words somehow. Um, I listen to it, you know, on the way to work. I listen to it all the time when I'm when I'm writing a novel. Um, and I have to read and I have to watch movies and um, th this stuff is really important fuel to me. What went into uh, Juliet Naked? Juliet Naked, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of things actually. If I, I'll speed list it for you. Um, a profile of Sly Stone in a magazine about three or four years ago in which uh, the journalist lured Sly Stone out for an interview. Uh, my six-year-old son who um, developed a sudden and very uh, upsetting for a time fear of death. Um, the book What Good Are the Arts by Professor John Carey where um, he argues that if somebody says something's a work of art then it is a work of art. There's no other argument that holds water. Um, Having readers, um, putting books out there and having people respond to them. Um, uh, a book I started before that was pretty much like another book I'd written before and I couldn't get going with partly because I was bored. So I thought um, <laughs> I, I want to write about different people, maybe older people. Uh, I want to write in the third person and I want to set it outside my home turf. Um, you know, hundreds of things. Let's talk about a couple of those things that you just okay. speed listed. I wasn't taking notes, so I'll probably mess it up. <laughs> but let's start with let's start with Sly Stone. I remember when Sly Stone first came out uh, in public and, and hadn't spoken in publicly in oh, what since the mid '80s. And um, I, uh, what was it that was so interesting to you about that, besides just the fact that, you know, Sly Stone made a lot of really amazing records? Well, I think what was interesting to me about the piece was that the journalist was a fan and his excitement at seeing this guy for the first time, you know, being the first to see him for the first time in 10 or 12 years, um, and he turns up on his great big motorbike and <laughs> says crazy things... Um, that had a real kind of narrative power to it, I think, that, that I stored away and thought, actually, you know, of course, a recluse who is missing for the first part and then comes back later on. You, you're bound, if, if you do it right, you're bound as a reader to get a kick out of that, I think. It's interesting. I mean, the different people have different reasons for disappearing. I mean, I, I've had uh, in the past couple of years on my show two two people who... Um, whose music I really care about, who had been gone from the music industry for a really long time. I interviewed um, uh, Betty Davis, who is um, who was a funk musician in the 1970s yeah. and, and married to Miles Davis. And um, she has literally been a recluse for 20 years or so. And, and um, <laughs> in the interview, related to me like someone who'd been a recluse for 20 years. And um, I, I interviewed uh, Bill Withers, who has also been retired for 20 years, um, outside of writing a couple songs for other people here and there, and he was almost the opposite. Like he had will, he had just left, and he had left to do something else with his life. And they both felt like you know, music industry had taken a lot out of them. Yeah. Um, but he, one had kind of disappeared into herself, and one had decided to go do something else. Um, Tucker is kind of a muddled mix. He's sort of lost his way as much as anything else yes I, I think one of the big problems for him is that um he's made this album that everyone all his fans regard as a work of great genius called juliet and um you know which is a kind of blood on the tracks um hear my dear hear my dear uh, cry of pain about a breakup 
And, and part of his trouble is that he thinks it's phony. Um, he thinks it's inauthentic. He, um, I don't want to give too much away, but you know, there are reasons for this. And um, he can't take what he reads about Juliet because it doesn't chime with what he feels about Juliet. And he didn't know where to go after he'd made it. Um, which I, I kind of understand and completely accept as a reason for um, not making any more music. He's also a drinker and um, you know he has five kids by four different women and, and failed relationships with pretty much all of them apart from the, the youngest boy. It must be a relief for you when you're spending all this time thinking about it to realize that you don't have quite the same burden of direct personal expression that a that a contemporary singer songwriter does in in your novels. You can you can make something up and it's totally allowed. Yes, um, and I, I think you know there is always some kind of autobiographical relationship with one's own fiction because you know that's why you have an interest in whatever it is in the first place. Um, that there there is something in you in your upbringing or your makeup that that has produced this work, and and so if you dig around you can find what it is and and it's not always as direct as people think it is but um yeah that that sort of raw cry of pain stuff um i i I often think how odd that must be you know if you write this song um about some woman who destroyed you and 25 years later you're still playing it you have no idea where the woman is you can't remember how you felt about her in the first place but you're still singing the song i think that's kind of an odd relationship with a piece of art it's harder for singer-songwriters because it's an active relationship. I don't, you know, when I see Springsteen and he sings, you know, does this bus stop at 82nd Street off the first album? I don't know what that's like for a 60-year-old man to sing that. Another one of the primary characters in Juliet Naked is uh, this woman named Annie who who lives in uh, a sort of seaside town that's sort of like, at one point it's compared to, uh, you compare it to uh, uh, one of the towns in an early Springsteen record. Well, T- Tucker thinks of, of that, but yes, <laughs> it's sort of a um, is sort of an English seaside town that's like uh, uh, slightly abandoned and somewhat desultory. Yes, at least in her eyes. What made you think of someone who's in a place like that and, and feels trapped in a place like that? Well, partly I wanted to write about isolation, and it's harder to write about isolation if somebody lives in a city. I mean, if, if someone's isolated in the middle of London, then um, they're a different kind of person. Annie's isolated culturally. Um, she, she doesn't know too many people like her in this small seaside town. There's no bookstore in this town. Um, and she and Duncan are kind of huddled together for warmth a little bit. They know that, um, or they think they know, that if they split up, uh, they, they're not going to find any like-minded souls. So it's a kind of marriage of, of convenience. And um, also, you know, I wanted Duncan to be away from other fans of Tucker Crow. And again, it's it's kind of easier to meet up with someone in a city. Um, you know, it seemed to me that what, that what had changed since High Fidelity is the way that we consume music. Everything's changed since 1995 when that book was published. People don't go out to find music anymore. And Duncan wouldn't have had anyone to talk to. He might have you know, had a drink with someone once a year and they could indulge in their Tucker Crow fetish. But now you can just talk every day, all day, to somebody who's exactly like you. And I'm not altogether sure that's a good thing. It's an interesting in the context of isolation that they're, they're both living together to, uh, to find somebody else who like, um, uh, likes to watch The Wire. 
Um, and which, you know, I can relate to that. Uh, but at the same time, he's living this whole other, like really complicated life online that she can only kind of look at a little bit confused. Yes. Um, and I think that's kind of what's happening a lot. Um, you know, all those Dylan guys talk to each other all the time. Um, uh, I think there are, there are artists who attract those kinds of people. I, I was thinking about that a lot, actually, when I was conceiving the book and while I was writing it, uh, that you have to be kind of oblique in some way, I think, to have the real diehard head cases <laughs> pouring over your every word. I'm not sure that Springsteen gets that, for example. He's, he's probably the closest I come to being a completist. Um, but I think that when you hear Springsteen, you understand what you're listening to. I don't think anyone's really confused about a Springsteen record. Uh, but Dylan, there's nothing he can say which seems direct and, and which doesn't apparently um, yield something up under close analysis. And so, you know, I wanted Tucker Crow to be more that kind of guy, I guess. Did you discover anything um, thematically in writing the book that you, that you weren't planning on going in? Uh, I think that um, th- there was much more about regret than I'd probably <laughs> intended when I started. Why is that? Well, I guess I, I just started to see how regretful the characters were, and it wasn't something, you know, it wasn't as though I planned the novel saying I'm going to write a book about regret, so these people have to be regretful. Um, it, it just kind of happened with the, 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 the circumstance and the function of the book that that was what I find, found myself thinking most about on their behalf, as it were. As it were. There are these two uh, guys in the book, peripheral characters, who are um, really passionate about Northern Soul, which is, I guess you should explain for American listeners who don't know what that is, what that is. I could never believe when I discovered Northern Soul that it actually did refer to the north of England. (laughs) Um, I always thought it just meant like Detroit and Chicago, but no. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because, you know, you just think, well, Southern Soul, we know where that comes from. Yeah, Northern from Memphis. (laughs) Northern Soul um, was... Really, um, the, the towns in England like Wigan and um, sort of northern industrial towns where they, for some reason, developed a passion for a sort of sub-Motown music. Um, it was really at its heyday at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s. Um, and you know, some Motown songs are regarded as uh, northern soul classics, but part of the point of the songs are their obscurity. Uh, if everyone's heard of it, then it can't really be a Northern Soul song because uh, you, you've got to be able to hunt these 45s down. And, and these guys, they, they're very athletic dancers and they they wear their um, sort of Fred Perry shirts and their Adidas trainers and they take talcum powder to dance halls and they, they dust the floor so they, it's not too slippy and they're really, really serious about the dancing and the music. But the music's sort of not the very best, really. And there are a couple of these guys. And again, it's something that's kind of over, even though people still do it. It's, it's interesting. These, these guys um, have this wholehearted passion for doing this. And um, Annie goes out, and she's completely uh, blissfully unaware of this phenomenon, um, you know, which is, as you mentioned, a pretty well-fated phenomenon at this point. And she's really, like, amazed by their commitment to it it's also an interesting kind of nerdiness because it's about it's a kind of nerdiness where it's actually about 
physicality and actually relating to other people. Yeah, the the dancing is is you know uh, I think Annie describes it somewhere between kung fu and cossack. You know, that there's, some, <laughs> there's some sort of odd odd moves that go on. It, it's quite male, as far as I can tell, as well. Um, there, there was a kind of relationship to mods, kind of relationship to football hooliganism. Um, and when Annie discovers, when she hears about it, she thinks it's going to be the key to living in this city, that it's what the city is famous for, and that once she walks through this door, she's going to walk into this throng of people, and suddenly she will feel that she's living in the present, the town is living in the present, and there's something to be kind of proud of and engaged in. But, of course, when she pays her money and goes in, there's no one there either, and it's all a bit tragic. There's still something kind of honorable about it, Oh, yes, I think so. I mean, I think Sarah Vowell says, you know, that the best relationships she's made are with people who who care too much about certain things, whether it's politics or music or books or, you know, sports as well in my case. And um, I I don't really trust people who don't care too much about (laughs) things. Let me ask you this question, though. The significance of Swamp Dog when I walked into this was I thought you were a serious person. I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know who you were the first time I came in, but I thought, you, oh, you okay. Said, you saw that autograph, uh, autograph photo of a man who once made an, uh, made an album cover of him in his underpants riding a rat, a giant rat. <laughs> you said, this is a serious that, man. This is I a serious be, man. I this is a man with a moral center. <laughs> I bet this is a guy who's got a lot of Proust on his bookshelf. <laughs> But I, no, I did take it as an indication of good things, not because necessarily I share your taste, but simply because you clearly care about something that not everybody cares about. Let me ask you this question, though. It, it seems like um, it, it seems like this kind of caring about, um, and it's reflected in this book, is much more of a dude thing than it is a lady thing. Well, it would appear to be that way. Um, I mean, I think we all know that women do have obsessional moments but it quite often is about other people about friends and and sometimes men and um you know they remember people's birthdays and uh, and they, they work really hard to keep relationships going whereas you know a lot of men i know you know if someone moves three blocks down the street and that's it it's it's over because you don't go to the same bar anymore so how can you possibly stay in touch um so i i think that women tend to put more energy into maybe more um uh, I was going to say healthy areas of life. But I, <laughs> I don't know if that is the, the case. How how do you think? How do you think that's? I mean, you're a guy with a lot of passion. How has that affected your life? Well, well, I um, you know I turned it into fun and profit for a start um, <laughs> with, with certainly the first two books. Um, I think you know you, you you go on journeys with these things. I, I for a long time I think football meant way too much and and would cast a shadow over weekends, weeks, months sometimes. <laughs> um, no, seriously, you know, like a whole summer could be ruined if it all went wrong in May, uh, which is the end of our football season. Um, I think that um, you, you can find yourself being really judgmental to people who it would appear don't care very much about things. You know, if they've got a couple of Phil Collins albums and a Celine Dion and that will do them, there was a time when I would have judged them you know, as human beings for that. I, I, I think that I've moved on. 
There's a character. A there's a uh, there's a townsperson in the book who hears that there's a big singer songwriter in town, then is like super disappointed. It's not Billy Joel, if I remember <laughs> that's, correctly. That's right. Yeah, but then gets very excited when he finds out he's American because they, as far as he can remember, <laughs> there hasn't been an American visitor, so his nationality is of more significance than his job. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Nick Hornby whose most recent book is called Juliet Naked. We'll be back in just a minute to talk with Nick about writing the film An Education. It's The Sound of Young America from PRI Public Radio International. Max FunCon is an annual convocation of awesome, hosted by me, Jesse Thorne, and MaximumFun.org. You can spend a weekend in beautiful Lake Arrowhead, California, enjoying classes and shows from some of our favorite past Sound of Young America guests. This year, we'll have Jonathan Colton, Casper Hauser, Maria Bamford, Mark Marin, Al Madrigal, Jimmy Pardo, Andrew W.K., and more. Registration for MaxFunCon just opened, but beds go fast. Visit MaximumFun.org for more information and registration. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer Nick Hornby. In addition to a new novel called Juliet Naked, he's also written the screenplay for a film in theaters now, An Education. An Education, as I mentioned, is a film about a 16-year-old girl, 16, 17-year-old girl. Um, And that is something that's really... um, really far from like a 27 year old guy who's, uh, acting like a 17 year old guy, which is, <laughs> which, which to this point has been, uh, has been your hallmark. <laughs> um, so, um, what did you relate to when you read the essay in Granta yes, that, right. um, that the film was based upon the sort of like 10 pages that it was? Well, there were, there were a couple of things. I think the first thing was, um, and I didn't know this at the time, but I saw as I'd worked on it over a period of years that I, I was starting to see it as actually a different version of Fever Pitch, which was, um, you know, I was that suburban kid who was very frightened of being locked out of the city and um, looking for ways in and, and trying to join the mainstream of a, of a kind of subcultural city life. And I found that for very little money, I could enter a football stadium and stand in the middle of it. And that was a big part of the appeal for me. For Jenny in the movie, this guy picks her up and literally drives her into the centre of the city. And as a consequence, she's exposed to um, you know, art and, and music and, and food and theatre and other countries. And um, I, I identify with that very strongly, the need to, to get access to that stuff. And I, I know what it was like... Um, in England, you know, I was I was a little kid when this film takes place, but my my town wasn't so different. Ten or fifteen years later, I had to go quite a long way to buy books and buy music that I actually wanted. Um, of, of course, that's something that's changed since. Um, I, I read an essay that the author of the um, uh, original memoir piece wrote about the development of this film, and she she said that um, she had a clause in her contract that. 
she wouldn't change anything in the scripts as they were written by you. And she mentioned she was kind of surprised that you were going to be doing it since you're more known for dudes. And uh, but that she would um, give feedback at each stage. Um, what what was that process like for you to write a screenplay that you know over the course of years and many iterations with this person who had lived a real experience that you were fictionalizing? Well, I think um, the, the the thing that was to my enormous advantage is that she's very smart. Um, you know, she's a smart writer she's a smart journalist and she understood that if it was ever going to be a movie things had to be invented i mean there just wasn't enough in the original piece uh, for a start to be faithful to this 10-page memoir you had to invent uh friends scenes lines everything and, and so you know she understood immediately that there was going to be invention happening and that's she, when you added the adolescent wizards <laughs> exactly but she never ever said you know that didn't happen or my dad wasn't like that um she read with great interest i think and um you know we talked about it sometimes i i found her particularly helpful on on period detail and uh, you know, she helped me to think about the time and, and I ended up realising that this was one of the last times in English history that English cool kids had a relationship with what we call the continent. Um, after the Beatles, everything swivelled round this direction. You know, everyone wanted to see American movies and listen to American music and read American books. But Jenny, um, she, you know, she's watching French New Wave films, she's listening to Juliette Greco, she wants to go to Paris, she's reading Camus. It was really a different cultural conversation. And, you know, like Lynn told me that they all read French L at school, and that was like a really cool thing to do, was to hunt down L in French and all sit around looking at the fashion photos because it was all completely different. Stuff like that I thought was great and really helpful. There's an amazing scene where um, uh, the protagonist is taking orders for Chanel number no. 5 when she's planning on a trip to Paris. From her, yeah, li- from little kids <laughs> at school, yeah. Um, well, we had currency restrictions in the 50s and early 60s and it was really rare for people to go to go abroad um and i think you know america was a wealthy country in the 1950s and you think of all that rock and roll music and the imagery that accompanies it and and that really comes from affluence you know the the cars with the fins and uh you know picking your girlfriend up and driving her off well you know th- nobody had a car in england um no kid had a car certainly and uh, you you waited in the, at the bus stop in the rain so there was a, a kind of lack of identification i think with with the cool kids with american rock and roll and it took the Beatles and the Stones to sort of interpret it and then send it back. And then, and then it, it made a bit more sense. And, of course, we were getting more affluent anyway. It must be scary as... Uh, I mean, you, you, you wrote the uh, screenplay for uh, uh, the first version of Fever Pitch. Yeah. But it must be scary as, a, as uh, a novelist who's used to having a sort of control over... Um, control over his work that you don't get in a screenplay situation, or at least having... You know, at least being able to try and manage a direct relationship with with the person who's reading it, you know? Um, yes, yes, that's a good way of putting it, actually. Um, well, it is... I wouldn't say it's scary, because part of the point of doing it for me is, is collaboration. And you're at the service of a director. That's what the script's for. 
Um, it's not this thing in itself. It's pointless saying, I'm not going to change a word, because that's a quick way of the movie never being made in the first place. If you feel like that, then you really should be writing books, or maybe plays, because, um, again, it's, it's, there's a more direct route from page to audience, I think, in the theatre. One thing that I... I mean, I think the the film has just some spectacular acting performances in it. Um, the cast is incredible. It's really, and I'm, you know, I don't, I'm not really, I'm not really the kind of guy who thinks or talks about that kind of thing a lot, but some really amazing performances. And um, one thing that I think is captured in the film very well is um, uh, like 16-iness. Right. Um, how do you write? 16ness and when you write it how do you figure out how to make it into something that actually shows up on the screen as 16ness especially when it's not just the kind where someone's just acting super bratty yes. and dumb um well uh, it feels much closer than perhaps it should um 16ness i think it's such an incredible time in one's life because you are this blank piece of paper and and people are scribbling all over you and you you kind of never really forget that you know the intense relationships you have with albums books movies people um girlfriends um and some of it feels quite fresh i i my i have a sister who's 2 years younger than me and i think that came in pretty useful thinking about her um and I used to teach, and you just use what, what you can. But, you know, a lot of it's Carrie as well. That's is Carrie Mulligan, the girl who plays Jenny. And, and she was 22 when we made the film, so, you know, it was a lot fresher in her mind, I think. And there's, there's really a lot in, in her performance. I, I joked with my wife years ago when, when we first started working on it, and we were talking about what a big part it was and how difficult it was going to be to cast. I said, you will never read this line in a review that was a great movie, but that girl sucked <laughs> uh, because it would be literally impossible. You couldn't have a great movie with the girl sucking. She's in every single scene of the film. And her intelligence and restraint and taste and detail, I think, is um, phenomenal. When you meet uh, Peter Sars, I presume you've met Peter Sarsgaard in real life. Yeah. I saw him last night. Do you, ha- <laughs> do you have this combination of feelings that you'd like uh, to kiss him be his best friend, and you're kind of afraid he's going to kill you? Uh, if you would like me to have those feelings, <laughs> I just feel like anytime I see the man, I want to be his best friend. I, I I'm thought... like weirdly attracted to him, and also I'm terrified of him. Yeah, there was, there was really too much detail in that, uh, <laughs> in that account for it to be anything other than personal response, I think. <laughs> so you let it all out. Well, Nick, thank you so much for uh, letting it all out on, the, out on The Sound of Young America. It, it was, was great re- to have you on this show. Great to be back again. Nick Hornby's new book is called Juliet Naked. He also wrote the screenplay for the new film An Education, which is in theaters right now. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our theme music provided to us by Dan Wally. In fact, all the music from the program provided to us by Dan Wally. Our editor in Chicago is Nick White, our intern, Mariel Reyes. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, and I hope you'll join us for MaxFunCon in May of 2010. You can find more information on MaxFunCon, which 
features lots of our fa- favorite past Sound of Young America guests in an idyllic uh, hunting lodge meets summer camp context on a lake here in Southern California uh, at maxfuncon.com, maxfuncon.com. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me. My email address is jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at maximumfun.org. And you can just address it to me. People send these emails and say, to whom it may concern or something. Basically, Nick works part-time on the show editing, and besides that, it's just me. So I'm the one that gets your email, jesse at maximumfun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America from PRI, Public Radio International.